This is Life of an Architect, a podcast dedicated to all things architecture with a little bit of life thrown in for balance. Designing a house is easy. Anybody can do it. At least that's what most people think. The reality is that there are literally thousands of nuances that when all added up make the difference between a house that suits your needs and one that simply keeps you from getting wet when it rains. This is what we're going to be discussing today in episode 79, Designing a House. Welcome to the Life of an Architect podcast. I'm Bob Borson. And I'm Andrew Hawkins. And today we're going to talk about designing a house, which sounds pretty simple, but the reality is that it's a lot harder than most people realize, at least if you do it the right way, in my opinion. (laughs) I know that doesn't sound right. You would think that if you were doing it right, it would make it easy, but that would actually be incorrect. Doing it right is hard. Doing it bad is easy. When I put it that way, it makes sense, right? If I, yeah, if I sure. do a bad job, it's super easy to design a house. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Here's five cardboard boxes that I've taped together. I put stucco on the outside. Welcome to your new house. Thank you. Yeah, nice. A little bit of ephus. We're all done. <laughs> Finished. What I thought would be good with today's topic, there could be an argument made for this is true with all of our episodes, but this one may be a bit more than normal. It's a little Bob-centric, because I'm going to tell you, I'm podcasting a little angry today. <laughs> we added this one to the queue out of sequence. Like, it wasn't a topic. I moved a topic, and I put this in here. Part of the reason I want to do it is because I just get beaten down by a bunch of stuff. And it's not always like somebody doing something that I think is uninformed or jerky. It's just exhausting. I don't know how to describe it better than that. Yeah. You know, I probably answered putting a shutter on my house question, like the 500,000th one this week. Oh, (laughs) yeah. And they're all reasonable. Everyone asks reasonable questions. So I'm not coming from a position that people who have questions are unreasonable because they have questions. I'm coming from the position that designing a house is hard. And a lot of people don't realize just how hard it is. And I don't know if that's because a lot of the people who think it's easy go, well, I've lived in a house my whole life. How hard can it be? Bedroom, check. Bathroom, check. Front door, check. Kitchen, check. Well, whatever. I can do this. Yeah. I actually had somebody send me a plan that they had designed in Excel. Excel. Yeah. That's awesome. They just put X's in the different <laughs> cells is how they did it. Oh, really? Yes. And I've had that's- one that's come to me where it was actually... They use the outline function. So they like, essentially they- <laughs> That sounds hard too. Yeah. They turned Excel into grid paper and then just <laughs> drew the, with the line tool around the areas. So I got a floor plan that was the borders of all the cells or what. Well, part of that's kind of a slap your forehead moment. And part of it, I go, man, I have admiration for the dedication. Yeah. That's a lot of effort time. that it took for somebody to do that. Yeah. Because I look at it and I go, there's no way. I couldn't do that. I wouldn't do it. Yeah, but granted, I mean, it's not to scale or anything like that, of course. (laughs) The bathroom's two feet wide and the bedroom's 100 feet wide and those kind of things. But yeah, there's a lot of that stuff. So we decided, I should say, I forced it on Andrew. So he's (laughs) being a good sport today. Yeah. But walking everybody who's listening today through this process of designing a house, in theory, could be a whole bunch of episodes. But 
to be honest, I'm not particularly interested in that specific focus. Like this is not a how to design a house podcast. Despite the title. Yeah, well, yeah despite this particular <laughs> title, this one title. But if there is an interest in us talking about this more often, let us know. Maybe we can work in more residential specific topics into the rotation. So what I want to start with is not the thing that's got me all worked up. And I'm not going to whinge throughout this whole episode just for people that are already bracing themselves for me just complaining the whole time. I'm actually not going to complain the whole time. (laughs) So one of the things that always kind of gets me is I still get a lot of phone calls. I bet every architect that designs houses gets that phone call where somebody says, hey, I've already figured it all out. I already know everything that I want to do. I just need somebody to draw it up because I need to have plans to submit for permitting, right? I think that's every architect. I mean, we didn't do residential work and I still got phone calls like that every week, right? You get those calls. I will tell you, and I've gotten to the point as I've gotten older, I don't think I'm cranky because I'm old. (laughs) Honestly, think that's true. I'm pretty immature. Like, I mean, (laughs) yeah, I'm pro fun, honestly. You know, I want to have a good time. And it's important to me that when I take on projects that I want to have a good time. So I'm not always looking for someone who's calling me up because they just want like lowest provider to do what they need them to do. I'm not that person. Yeah. They just want drawings. That's really all they They want. They just want drawings. Yeah. So I will send them to someone else. I'll say, you know what? You could be awesome. I might love to hang out with you, but I don't want you to be mad at me because that's not how my process works. That's not what I do. And occasionally get someone that has this, whoa, aren't you special? And as I've gotten older, I've tried to explain that in a way that helps people understand what exactly it is that architects do in this creative slash technical process. And I'd say, let's pretend that you're a doctor, as an example. And a patient comes in and says, hey, doc, I have this pain that's in my gut right here. And I went online and I did some research and I've determined that I have this problem. And the solution is I need you to write a prescription for me and cheerio. Or even worse, I need you to do surgery. Yeah. You got to take this part out of me. That's what's wrong. Yeah. You got to remove it. And I need you to cut it right here. Mm-hmm. And this is how you're going to do it. Mm-hmm. And you know, there's not a doctor walking the face of the planet that's going to do that. Well, the bad ones, maybe. Let's hope. The ones that Let's hope, just right? like <laughs> the pill mills or whatever. But so I go, that's not what I do. So if people go, hey, can you just draw this up for me? No, I can't. And it's not because I'm in my white tower. It's just because I'm not set up. I'm not the low cost provider. I'm not set up to do that kind of work. Well, and I mean, that's not enjoyable to you. No. That's not what you personally like about being an architect doing residential work. Yeah. I like going through the process. And actually that's on my list of notes. Part of what I want to talk about, and it's actually in this next section, because the process that we go through in designing a house, the first step, this is not going to be a post on step one, do this, step two, do that. But I will say that where it starts is what we call programming and schematic design. And for Bob Borson, I combine those into the first phase of the project. And this whole part is just trying to figure out what the needs are, what goals are we trying to solve, what objectives do we have. It doesn't look like a house. I'm not telling you what your house is going to look like during this phase. This is a focused effort that when we sit down with a new client on a residential project, We talk about goals, we talk about requirements, and it's during this initial conversation when we try to figure out exactly what this project is supposed to accomplish. And like I said earlier, keeping the rain out is generally assumed. Yeah. It is not the sort of question that I'm trying to find out. Like, do you want me to keep water out of your house? 
That's not what we're talking about. This is not just true for me, by the way. I would bet every architect would answer this question the exact same way. I prepare a series of rough sketches during the schematic design phase that shows general arrangement of rooms and their placement on the site. I like to assemble all the information that has been data dumped onto me during this fact-gathering part of the project. This is when we go, do you have a grand piano? That's when those kind of questions get asked. Yeah. What side of the bed do you sleep on? It's all about trying to understand the client, who they are and what they do and what their needs are. Yeah. You know what? And I will tell you that the schematic design and programming phase is typically my favorite because there's such a social aspect to the collection of all this information to do a proper job. And it's important that I have a real working understanding of how the house will ultimately be used so that when we create a finished product, it supports that family's lifestyle. That's what this is about. Mm -hmm. So when somebody just says, all the information they think they want to provide is, I need four bedrooms, five and a half baths, a living room, a dining room, and a kitchen, and mudroom, and whatever. Just checking those boxes. And I want an open floor plan. Done. Yeah. yeah you're like, finished. I hit that button. I just <laughs> enter these like yeah. ingredients in, and we're done. Uh-huh. So it's like, okay, you want a dining room. How many people do you want to have in that dining room? Are you going to serve food in the dining room, or do you need a buffet? Are you going to have a piece of furniture, or is this a built-in couch? I can come up with a hundred questions. <laughs> Yeah. When you say, I want a dining room, okay, question one of a hundred mm-hmm. is about to come your way. Because we want to make sure that you have what you're supposed to have and what you need, not just what you think you need. Yeah. Or what the internet says. Right. So that's what schematic and programming design means for me. I love it because it's when I get to understand people. Like I said, that's when I find out what side of the bed you sleep on. Do you get up early? Does somebody sleep in? Do we want to avoid having light from the bathroom shine across the face of somebody when they're still in bed? Because they don't get out of bed till 7 and someone else gets up to run their 5K every morning yeah. at 4.30 in the morning. I need to understand these things to do a proper job. And I will tell you, more times than not, this process yields a smaller house than what they might be thinking. Because we're not designing to the lowest common denominator. So what you think you need in 5,000 square feet, maybe it works in 4,000 square feet. Because mm-hmm. you don't have rooms that you don't need. The space is where you need it, not where you just yeah. are checking a box. And because I think people are probably going to ask it, I thought maybe we should just take a moment right here in the beginning so people don't have to search for it if this is something that they're actually interested in. But maybe we should quickly talk about how architects charge for their services. And this is really not that different based on any of the type of work. There's probably a hundred different pricing models that you can go through and how do architects figure out those fees. And I can tell you it's really formulaic on our commercial pricing. They're like, oh, this is what you get paid when you do a hotel. It's based on the amount of keys that you have which there's some flawed logic behind that because some hotels have a lot of keys, but they don't have conference room component to it. Yeah, a lot of amenities. Yeah, so things change. And now there's more amenitization of office buildings is going crazy right now. Like all the office buildings we're doing, man, now we could do a 125,000 square foot office building and they're putting workout facilities and locker rooms in there and conference centers and catering sections and rooftop it's very, very competitive. Everyone's trying to figure out how we can put all these things in there. And there's pricing models on how we get to all that stuff. Residential, in contrast, for the most part, I think it comes down to three different models. There's percentage, the cost of construction, mm-hmm. and there's an hourly rate. And I will tell you that Bob Borson here at Book of Powell, we do both of those because we want to try to accommodate the needs of the client and people who need more help might want a percentage of construction. People who think they have everything figured out, they get everything lined up, like they make fast decisions, they're readily available. 
they might want to go hourly because we can be really efficient at our tasks because I don't have to do 12 versions of the front door for them to postulate over, you know, go, what kind of front door do I want to put on my house? Can I look at another version? Can I look at another version? Can I look at another version? Mm -hmm. So sometimes hourly rate works better. And we actually have what we use in our office, what we call a blended rate. So my hourly rate is three times what the other person that I might typically have on my job helping me costs. You don't want to pay 3x for Bob time compared to 1x for this other person's time. So what we do is we do a blended rate. We drop my rate down by 40% and we raise the other person's rate up by about 20%. So you pay a flat rate regardless of who's working on the project. But it's an hourly rate still. But it's still an hourly rate. So, I mean, I guess in my mind, there are some other things that pop up like per square foot or even fixed fee. Mm -mm. You don't think that those are options or maybe you just don't think they're good options. Is that what you're going to say? Well, no, it, it depends. If you're doing production work, you're probably charging a per square foot fee. Mm -hmm. But that also suggests that you don't have the client component asking for variations one, two, and three and options A, B, and C on those variations. Because hmm. how do you control how much time you're going to spend if you're doing a per square foot estimate? Mm -hmm. If somebody goes, oh, I charge $3 a square foot and somebody wants a 4,000 square foot house, uh, how does that work? Yeah. What's the difference between them just saying, like, they just pick up the drawings? Because that's what you get with a lot of builder homes. Here's stock plans. They're already done. Yeah. And we can, like, break this bit off and you can choose from version one, two, and three to plug on this piece. Mm -hmm. There's that kind of stuff that, and architects are getting hired flat rates to do that kind of work. Mm -hmm. I don't do production work. Mm -hmm. So those don't work for me. And I would imagine that anyone who's looking to hire an architect to design a house for them, they are not going to be offered a per square foot rate to do their house. I've heard of it, but I've actually never met anyone who actually did that. Hmm. You know, and when we get percentage of the cost of construction, there's always kind of a slippery slope with that as well. Yeah. Because some people will think, oh, well, you're designing more house or you're- A more expensive house, yeah, to get more money. Yeah, you're specifying more expensive stuff so that you can get more money. And again, that's not unreasonable for somebody who doesn't yeah. know to think. I would probably think that. I don't think that's crazy. So we try to make sure that we have some obligations. So if you come to me and say, I'm going to do a million dollar house. And I say, all right, well, if we're going to do a percentage cost construction for the sake of easy math, let's say it's 10% on your million dollar house. So my fee is $100,000. If they tell me their budget's a million dollars, I feel like I have some obligation to design within a certain parameter to a million dollars. If you tell me you have a million dollar budget and I design a $2 million house, doesn't it seem reasonable that I have some responsibility in fixing that problem? Yeah. I mean, I should know better. And that's why I was asking, I was curious about a fixed fee, essentially a percentage turned into a fixed fee. If they say their budget is a million, well, there's a million and you've got your $100,000 and if it ends up being a million five, but that's just because they said it's a million five, well, then maybe you adjust. But if not, you're still not quote unquote screwing them over. Well, when we still do the percentage of cost of construction, so let's say you go, all right, Bob, here's my million dollars. And I go, great. And we're designing. And I'm like, you can't do this. This is, breaks your budget. And they're like, but I really want it. Mm -hmm. My job as steward of their budget and of the project, I have to tell them when we're making decisions that are not in alignment with our goals from a budgetary standpoint. And if they say, no, let's just keep going. I like it. Mm -hmm. Now they have some ownership of this. And if it gets priced out and it comes in at 1.5, 
they have some shared responsibility in this. Now, if they come back and say, nope, I got to get it back down to a million. Well, we'll have a conversation. But if they say, no, this is what I wanted. It's 1.5. Well, you're still paying me 12% of the 1.5. So I'm covered for all that. Mm -hmm. But we also don't do things like, and this comes up a lot. Let's say that you go, well, I'm putting in a $100,000 crystal chandelier. Well, you know what? Yeah. I'm not charging you 12% on that chandelier because it doesn't take me any more work for that type of product. Yeah. Right. So that's not my point, you know, and typically we don't. Unless it weighs six tons and then I've got to do some structural work, but otherwise it's an electrical outlet and it's there. Yeah. Even then I'm not designing such massive houses that I need to put copious amounts (laughs) of steel to carry a chandelier. Yeah. I mean, I put in some big light fixtures before, but it took a regular amount of effort to make that. (laughs) Yeah. So we don't ding people for stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. And more times than not, the contractor doesn't purchase that. And our fee is generally based on what the contract for construction is through the contractor. So on a fixture like that, 100% of the time, I would say provided by owner, installed by contractor. Mm -hmm. So that's not going to be included in the cost of construction. And we run into problems sometimes when people want to like self-execute. Yeah. Somebody goes, I've got a buddy. So he can do this at a lower rate. Yeah. My brother-in-law is going to build it for me. We get into problems with that every now and then. Or somebody goes, hey, I want to do this house in my budget, $600,000. And I go, well, based on what you told me and the images you shared with me and the square footage you're asking for, this is not a $600,000 house. Mm -hmm. And they say, well, I'm going to do all my own drywall work and I'm going to do all this work. And I go, well, I still have to do my part of the work just because- you're getting the friends and family discount does not mean that I'm doing less work. Chances are I'm going to end up doing a lot more work, quite honestly. Usually. That doesn't happen too much, but occasionally it happens. We have to have this whole, you have to understand the way we charge and why we charge is because these things exist. Just because you have a buddy who is willing to write that fee off doesn't mean that my work is diminished. And all I'm asking to be paid for the work that I do. Again, not unreasonable. Yeah. So it's usually not a problem. So there you go. There's pricing 101 for architects. We'll move on from that. One of the things that we do, and this has to do with the cost of construction that sometimes people just don't think about. They think about materials driving up the cost or the type of plumbing fixtures I put in. Sure, that incrementally all adds up. Everything always adds up. But I will say the biggest problem we have with busts in budgets when they happen is when people come to us with a programming and they say, I want this room and that room and these three rooms and I want five of those rooms and I want this room and I want that room. We go through the process and I have a programming matrix that I will use and it will list out all the rooms because a lot of times people on their list of rooms don't add rooms like entry. Mm -hmm. When you open the front door, you're normally not stepping into the kitchen. Yeah, it's not an apartment where you walk right into the kitchen or the living room. Yeah, or they leave out a coat closet. Or they leave out a mud room, or they leave out an AV closet. I mean, there's just rooms that they leave out. Mm -hmm. The other thing that people tend to leave out is they leave out wall thickness. Yeah. So if I just say, I'm going to have five rooms, and they're all 10 by 10. Well, 10 by 10 is 100 square feet. I have five of those rooms, so that's 500 square foot. That's how big my house is. I go, no, it's not, because (laughs) I've got walls, i got interior walls, i got exterior walls, and that's the square footage of your house. That's what the appraisal is going to call it. I mean, this is the contractors building it. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times when contractors price it, their lick their finger, stick it in the air kind of methodology is not based on interior score footage. It's based on perimeter score footage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. So when they go, eh, based on the fact that you want 
a metal roof and you want 10 foot ceilings and you want brick on the outside of the house and you want insulated double pane windows and blah, 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 wood floors. This is going to be a $250 square foot house. That's where Mm. we're targeting right now. And your footprint is 5,000 square feet. Yeah. Bam. There it is. Yeah. That's like we're in the ballpark. Yeah. And they're not just going to add up the interior size of the rooms. So we'll do this housing, this room matrix to figure out all the rooms that are there and like closets and bedrooms. Nobody ever puts closets in their bedrooms when they're figuring out how big like the square footage is. They leave that out. Mm -hmm. So we'll do that. And what happens is we'll add those up and get a total. And then we'll do a multiplier to add in for circulation and wall thickness. So you might say, oh, my house is 4,000 square feet. And I go, well, after a 15% multiplier to cover for like walls and hallways, it's actually 5,250 square feet or something. Mm Mm-hmm. And we go, well, there's a big difference at $250 a square foot between 4000 and 5250 square foot. Yeah. It adds up pretty quick here. So that's something that we deal with a lot when designing a home. The thing that I have on my notes here that really the meat of this is what makes designing a house hard. This is the consideration that I want to talk about. One of the things that I deal with since I've moved over to Book of Pal, there's tons of positives. So this is not me. You know, the people that write my checks listen to this podcast, so you got to know that I'm not going to throw people (laughs) under the bus. Yeah. But I am going to say, I mean, I've made my career on saying what I think and what I believe (laughs) and trying to say it in a way that doesn't get me sacked. Yeah. So one of the things that I'm struggling with is now that we have a residential studio here at the office, I'm working with a very, very small team of people. And for the most part, none of them have done houses before. I have one person that has. And normally our teams are made up of me and one other person or me and two other people. And that's very manageable. You know, the truth is that has nothing to do with Boca Powell. That was true at my last office. We hired people right out of school and we had to teach them how to do this stuff. This is what it is, Mm -hmm. right? As long as you got a Bob here who knows how to do this stuff, I oversee it all and I have them for execution, labor, and for bouncing off ideas and brainstorming through things. So none of this is new, but the difference that I'm running into at my current office is the people I'm working with, they're not right out of school. They are highly skilled, seasoned individuals who just don't know how to do residential work. (laughs) And it's kind of driving me a little bonkers because they're all quickly learning that, at least in the Bob Borson methodology of designing a house, that you have to think about how something is built at an incredibly nuanced scale, much, much sooner than you would on a commercial job. So when they draw things, when they model things, when we, like, well, when this episode comes out, it'll be the last post I wrote immediately before this one. I'm going to talk about renderings and how we use a lot of renderings now in the residential studio here. And they have been incredibly powerful. And the people that we're working with, it's like they get it and they see it. But now we're learning that we have conversations like, well, I don't like that cabinet pull. And you're like, hey, I'm not going to take two hours to model eight cabinet pulls and then put them. I mean, it's a cabinet pull. We'll show you a picture of what we're doing. I'm not going to model a cabinet pull yeah. to let you know that there's cabinet pulls on the cabinets. I don't have the bandwidth for that. Or people go, I don't like that color wood. And you're like, I can't get the wood exactly the way that we want. Or I'm not going to model the five-step cathedral raised panel cabinet door fronts <laughs> because- yeah. Financially, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense to work at that level. And so the other day, I kind of had a, I kind of yelled at everybody. 
on my team. <laughs> Back from vacation and you're yelling at people. You know what? I didn't think of it that way. <laughs> I'm all tan, just yelling at people. <laughs> now I feel bad, Andrew. <laughs> Okay, let's forget that I was on vacation mm -hmm. and I came back and yelled at everybody. <laughs> and the truth is, I didn't actually yell. I expressed disappointment in a way that they probably felt like they were, you know, the whole, I'm very disappointed in you all kind yeah. of conversation. I'm not angry. I'm just disappointed. Yes. And that's because I found that, honestly, that hurts more. <laughs> <laughs> so we're looking at all this stuff and I'm looking at this rendering and it's beautiful. It's amazing rendering. And it's got all this stone on it and we've got a wood header on it, you know, and it's rustic. And, and then if I look at the other elevation, that's the exact opposite side, it's got drywall. And I go, I got a cased opening in here. And I see on this elevation that stone goes into the cased opening. But if I were to walk through that cased opening, do a 180 and look back, which is this elevation that I'm looking at right here, where's the stone? Like, have you mitered three and five eighths inches of stone such that it's a <laughs> knife's edge yeah. and my sheetrock and my stone come together in a way? I go, what is that? It's invisible. Yeah. Yeah. And I go, this is, we need to create inside corners. So. Hey, everybody, when we're drawing this up, you have to think about material transitions. This is like residential, if I can be so bold. This is high-end residential 101. We can't just throw this stuff out there and go, well, we'll fix it later. We have to design it because now my door width is going to change. Mm -hmm. Either it's going to get bigger because I need to make it wider because when my stone gets added to it, it's going to reduce it down or it's going to get more. I mean, you got to think about this stuff right now. And so as I'm chastising them for the need for them to do better and to think further down. One of the guys goes, hey, I know you're frustrated with us and we're super sorry. So he's making me feel bad. And he goes, we will do better. But he goes, you got to understand, none of us have designed a house before. And I, I literally almost fell on the floor. I was like, this has got nothing to do with designing a house, <laughs> right? This is just, <laughs> I don't care what kind of project type it is. Yeah. If you have stone coming together with drywall at an outside corner, you're going to see either on one elevation, you're going to see a little strip of drywall, or you're going to see in the other elevation, three and a half inches of stone, one or the other. Mm -hmm. This is y'all modeling stuff and just painting a surface with a pattern, and we need to do better. Yeah. And so when that happened, it's when I thought, you know, we need to talk about designing a house because everybody looks at these giant commercial office buildings and they're like, oh, that's big architecture. That's hard. And then I've got this small band of like, they're a team. These are really talented people. Like I'm getting on them about a wood transition and a floor and how it doesn't align with my door jam, 28 feet on the other side of the room. And I'm like, who's going to think of that if you don't think about it? Mm -hmm. They need to align. They're like, everything is for a purpose. I was like, yes, everything has a purpose. <laughs> We're not just cutting out blocks of spaces and pushing them together. Yeah. So. Well, and I think, and I, I will support maybe their argument in the sense that Boom. no 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 those kind of things actually i think seem to matter a little bit less in a commercial project or maybe i should say they're less appreciated in a commercial project where in a home or residence they're like highly appreciated because you've got one person looking at that same thing over and over and over whereas in commercial projects it's not always that way yeah i think that's true right so i think that's true it doesn't give them quarter. It doesn't alleviate them from being yes. having to learn that stuff. I'm just saying that to me, that's one of the big differences between commercial and residential work. Is that and I don't want to call it attention to detail, but I don't know what else to call it other than some level of attention to detail. 
Well, part of it's just process. They need to do it a few times. They need to understand what it's like to feel the cold hand of me (laughs) smacking them down. (laughs) I'm laughing about it because I'm a super nice guy. But here's an example. In one of these projects we're looking at, we're doing a stair. And the owner wants this like open stair and he wants to feature proof it for an elevator. And so we said, well, here's an option. Here's an option. Here's an option. This is internally, by the way. So before we present this, we're like, let's come up with three options to go through this. One option will be a winder stair this way. Another one will be a winder stair, but we're actually going to build a wall underneath it. Like one stair is going to be open. You'll be able to see through it. Open risers. It'll wrap around like a lighthouse stair, if you can imagine. Mm-hmm. And then one version will actually build a wall underneath that stair. And then another version, we're going to move it off to the side and blah, blah, blah. doesn't matter. It's very in the weeds. And so we're talking about it, and they're like, well, here's the low-cost option, which was the open riser version. And I was like, why do you think this is the less expensive version? <laughs> As I was about to say, that, that doesn't sound like low-cost, but go ahead. And they're like, well, there's less stone, because the other one, we have basically a wall underneath the entire <laughs> stair volume, and we've faced it in stone. Yeah. Which was lovely, by the way. It was lovely. And I was like, okay, well, what's holding up your stair in this open riser one? Because the way you yeah. detailed this, by detailing, I mean they just drew it, like it's modeled. Modeled this, yeah, just modeled this. And I go, you're going to have to have steel in multiple places. I'm going to have to run a steel tube through this wall at an angle, and I'm going to have to cantilever out steel tubes that I will then have to wrap in wood because you've got no, sub- what's holding your stair up? There's nothing holding the stair up. You basically have designed a cantilever stair. <laughs> you've just added 20 yeah. grand worth of steel. To the stair that no one was even going to see. It's not even a design feature. And I go, that's way more expensive than traditionally framing this out of double two by 12s and building a. F- yeah, and covering that all up with stone because we're yes. just going to. Yeah. Yeah. And I go, you're going to pay $2,200 for the stone and 20 grand for the steel. This is not the low cost option. And of course, guess which one the owner likes? Yeah. The open one. Of course. Of course. Of course they do. Yeah. And so when I told him that, you know, and the thing is, I don't want to be the, we have a woman in our office who used to work with me and she's awesome. Like on a scale of one to a hundred of awesome, she's a hundred. And she says, I don't want a pretty woman them. This is the way she describes it internally to us. Like they go, I love that. And the first thing we do is it's not in your budget. You can't like that because it's too expensive. Mm-hmm. She goes, I don't want a pretty woman them. And I go, but we need to tell them that. So I started saying, if you're on the fence between these two, <laughs> like if you like them both, let me just say, if it matters, this one is going to cost $20,000 more than this one will. Five times more than the other one. Yes. Yeah. So you have to really like this one. And if you don't really like it to the tune of $5,000 stair versus a $20,000 stair, then I'd probably recommend for our purposes, let's go with the $5,000 stair. Mm-hmm. That's me being a good shepherd and my staff, the people I work with, being good designers. But I need to marry the shepherd of the budget with the design of the project mm-hmm. and the consideration of all the moving parts, mm-hmm. which actually that makes an excellent segue to what makes designing a house hard. Other than all the things I just got through saying. Other than the previous 30 minutes. <laughs> yes. And working for me is not yeah. what makes designing a house hard. Dealing with post-vacation Bob. Yes. So I have, how many bullet points did I write down here? I wrote down six bullet points. Six or seven. And I'm not going to elaborate. I'm just going to blast through these. So one of them is sometimes there's mixed goals between the shareholders, which is the people that are going to be living in the house. 
I like it. We should say air quotes, shareholders, the clients, right? Yeah. I don't want to say husband and wife because it may not be husband and wife. I don't want to get into all that. So I just like the people that have a vested interest in answering the question. If somebody says, I want to put a tree in my dining room and someone goes, that's a terrible idea. Okay. What do I do? Yeah. One of them wants this and the other one says no. You're like- Yeah. I go, okay. So now I'm the mediator that helps them figure out, well, you know, I'm not sure you're going to get the kind of light you need to put the kind of tree that you want in. We're going to have to do this. this. So if you want it, we can make it happen. And here's what you got to do. And then they come to the conclusion jointly to say, okay, yeah, we don't want to do that. So that's part of what goes into my job is not just that they go, I want this. And I go, great, done. And we move on. Yeah. There's a, okay, if you want that, let's talk about what that actually means and what's going to be required. So they can be informed to decide, do we want it or do we not? And that's normally what helps align them in the decision-making process. Yeah, I'm sure every residential architect has multiple horror stories along those lines right there. Oh, for sure. (laughs) For sure. Yeah. I have a handful, but I go, you know what? I don't really want to share them (laughs) because it seems disrespectful. Yeah, I got you. Another one of my bullet points was, Just because you've lived in a house does not mean you are qualified to design one, which I'm a little cavalier with the way I put that, but I will tell you that I don't love all my clients. Let me just say this rather. I don't love all of them. I currently feel very fondly of all the ones I currently have. We're doing a project and I actually talked about it. This is the one that we did the front door experience. They're awesome. They're great clients. But he came to us and he's like, here, I designed a plan and this is what we're interested in doing. And I looked at it and I was like, hey, are you open to us maybe changing this a little bit? <laughs> you know? Yeah. And working with this some? Yeah. And actually, he and I had the conversation early on about the whole doctor writing a prescription for the guy who's already figured out what's wrong with him. And I was like, well, if you've already figured it out, you don't need me. And he's like, well, I don't really know what I'm doing. <laughs> maybe you would take a look at it. And I was like, sure. Turns out he actually did a really good plan. Like, there were a couple of things that were not great about it. But I was pretty impressed, like all his adjacencies and his flow. There was a lot of things that he had done that were pretty solid. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, let me do this for you. Would you be willing and open to me? I'll take your plan and let me fix it. Let me just like, I won't really change it drastically, but I'll fix the things that you've done to maybe make, make it make a little more sense. And he goes, yeah, that's fine. And I said, and would you be willing to let me do an alternative plan? And he says, Yes, we'll do that. Well, when I presented him, he goes, we're going to do your plan. Like, we like your plan better. Mm. And part of it was because they had this, the main room and there was hardly any windows out of it. And I go, like, you're in a tunnel. We need to put the big room on like the edge of the house, not 20 feet tucked into two wings of the house. So we go through that process. They're smart, clever. He actually learned Revit. The model he sent us was in Revit. Nice. And I'm embarrassed to admit this, but he knows Revit better than I do. Mm. I go, I'm okay with that because I know architecture better than he does. So so it worked out. So another one that we deal with sometimes, what makes it hard is failing to consider lifestyle and focusing on checking the box. And that is what you get sometimes when people go, well, what I need is five bedrooms, five and a half baths, kitchen, living room, blah, 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 blah. There's no nuance to that at all. Well, how do you use these spaces? What do you do? Do you entertain? Do you have kids? How old are they? Mm-hmm. Do you work at home? All these kind of, how are you going to use it? Not just, I need a room. And that's one of the things that I see when we look at spec homes a lot. You have all these like truncated hallways, like hallways come and they turn at a 45 degree angle 
Yeah, our doors, doors into rooms are at 45s. Yes. Stuff like that. Yeah. And I go, that's garbage, people. That's lazy plan work. Mm-hmm. There are very few times of any architect I've ever known whose work I've ever looked at and said, wow, they look like they know what they're doing. They don't do that. They don't have closets where the back wall is cut at a 45 degree angle. <laughs> like it just, it's not like that. It doesn't work like that. Yeah. So and that kind of falls into the next one as well. And that had to do with understanding flow how you move from space to space and what exactly defines the space, especially now that open plan concept have been popular for so long now. How do you identify spaces without actually putting four walls around them? You know, that's something that we deal with a lot, like the project we're doing with the guy with the front door experience. He's got a room. Imagine a big square room. And one quadrant is the kitchen. Another quadrant is the living room. Another quadrant is the den. And another quadrant is the dining room. There's no walls between any of these spaces. But I can guarantee you the way we've laid it out, the way we orient it, the where we put the doors, the way we shape the roof, the where we put the windows, each of those spaces is defined. You know when you're moving from one to the other. That's not that easy to do. There's 10 things that you do to try to make that happen. And just kind of scrunching them all together, loft style, yeah. living the dream, that doesn't work. Oh, I thought you just changed floor materials. <laughs> <laughs> so each quadrant's got its own floor type so you know when you walk from the carpet in the living room to the tile in the kitchen to the wood in the dining room <sighs> you know you're on a different <laughs> <laughs> you know that would be more sad if it wasn't true and now it's funny yeah, because you know what you do see that oh yeah yeah the real notion of that is that we know how to manage space and not just rooms and there's a difference between those two things and that's the difference in, I think, being an architect versus just being someone that draws house plans yeah, is that we understand space, which is three-dimensional, and not just rooms and boxes. There's a difference in those two things that I think goes along this whole lines of really thinking about what you're doing when you're making a house in that checkbox. I think that's extremely well put in that it's, it's about space. At some point, it, it, it leaves the plan arena and becomes a volumetric consideration. And like how tall your windows are and where they're placed and how do you enter a room and how do you leave that room? These are all things that are spatial because there's flow, there's movement through these things. And I think that what good residential architects do is they understand those really well. And then they're able to overlay that with your lifestyle in a way that makes sense. Mm -hmm. The last bullet point I had on this one was considering the land around the house, creating outdoor spaces that support the space they serve which can start to extend views, it's the introduction of light. These are little subtle things because it's not like, hey, just put in windows everywhere you possibly can. Yeah. Do I put in two windows or I do put four in? Do I gang them together? If I walk up, where do I want to stand? And if I stand there, am I going to be standing right where a mullion of a window is going to be? Mm-hmm. I can guarantee you someone who doesn't design houses has never thought about the mullion of a window based on where somebody would just intuitively go and stand when they want to look out that window. It's one of the reasons why I tell you that most residential architects, they don't do thing in pairs. You don't put twos. You don't put two windows together. You put three together. Yeah. Because someone's going to stand in the middle and they've got a window in front of them, not the jam where two windows are put together. <laughs> yeah, the joint of two windows yeah. coming together. So you see threes and fives. You don't see twos and fours. But that's part of the consideration. I don't think that's nuanced at all, quite honestly. But if you don't think about it with any sort of regularity, you probably don't think about it at all. 
it's probably like it's a switch. You either yeah. do or you do not. Sure. Right. I think the funny thing is a window placement is one of the things I think that we really think about more than most people. Some of my favorite is when you go into some of those spec homes or whatever. Sometimes when I'm out and about and I see them being built, I'll go walk around one, right, while it's getting built. And in order to make the front facade look right, they've got these windows equally spaced or they're mirrored or symmetrical or something. And one ends up in a, a closet or something. You know, <laughs> you know, there's a giant window in the front of the house, but that's the closet of some room. So, you know, the blinds are always closed and then it wastes closet space. But in order for it to look right, there's got to be a window there. You know, it's funny. As you're telling that story, it made me think of this picture. It might actually be in my Instagram feed. It was, it was a really big house. It was a giant builder house. You know, the truth is, it actually was a pretty good looking house. And I had a realtor who's a friend of mine say, hey, would you meet over at this house? I have a couple that's thinking about buying it, but they want to talk about how can they change it, modify it, and fix a couple of things. And I'd like to have you be part of that conversation. So I'm walking through the house. And as you walk up the sidewalk, right on axis with the front door, there's like this big window above it. You know what the window above it was? It was a toilet room. And you go, well, what's the big deal about that? Yeah. The toilet, you could see the edge of the toilet through the window. Through the window. So if anybody actually sat on that toilet. Sat on it. You would 100% see them, and especially their knees and their pants around their ankle. Like knees and legs and stuff. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so you know if anyone was actually ever there, they would close, that would be closed 100% of the time. All the time. Yeah. And I go, this is ridiculous. So- the other thing that I think that architects are really good at, at least one of the things we try to do, especially when we're trying to be, again, as I say this a lot, stewards of the budget. It's like, how can I make things simple and cost effective, but still give you these special moments? We try to pick those moments where we can get the most value, like they can be appreciated the most, which is what that whole front door experience that we're doing in that house was. Like everybody who walks up to the front door of this house is going to have a moment. This is going to go, this is amazing. When you're in the main room of the house, you're going to look out the window and you're going to see it. This thing plays many, many, many roles. And it's worth spending extra money on this because it plays such a critical role in everybody's experience of this house. So we always try to find these special moments. And that could be the front door experience. I wrote a post once. It was called Big Design in Small Details. And it had to do with this custom bench assembly we built outside of the guest rooms. This is in the cabin. And... The idea was there could be two families staying in this house at the same time, and someone's in this bedroom and someone's in that bedroom. Well, the owner of the house, as host and hostess of the guests, they would use this bench, and it was a walnut bench, and it had a steel background, and there were hooks on it, and there was a shelf on the top. They would put sunscreen up there, or hats, or an umbrella, or you know sheets. They'd put books that you might want to read. They'd put games that were on this. It was like this whole little drop zone specially curated for the person that was staying in that room. Mm -hmm. And it was not a particularly expensive moment, mm -hmm. but rather than just being like a piece of furniture, they bought it world market and slid it outside the door and said, here you go. Like the whole thing, we had conversations about what are five, six, seven, eight things that we can do that would increase the feeling of hospitality that somebody would feel when they stayed in this space. Mm -hmm. And that was something that we did. We also had another post. It's called Not Your Typical Modern Wood Deck. And it had to do with taking really, really simple concepts that are well detailed, but they're extremely well executed. And this was, we had this very long covered porch that was in the backyard of this house. And we had this limestone that came up to it and it stopped and it was flush with an Ipe wood deck that came across. 
because we wanted to have a material change when you were coming out of the house. We didn't want you to just look down this like long covered porch of this stone flooring. And we wanted just a little variety to it. And it was executed really, really well. It was not an expensive thing to pull off. It was well done. The contractor did an amazing job building it. It was not, I mean, it could have been a lot easier to build, to be honest, <laughs> but it was, mm-hmm. it was well detailed. And then they executed that detail extremely well. And the experience you get from it makes a difference. In my mind, it makes a huge difference. And that's a big part about it. Just trying to find these moments when you're designing a house that can make something like, doesn't even have to be unexpected, but just something that people notice. Yeah. Just a little bit more. Just yeah. that extra cherry on the top of it. For sure. And then the, because I know I've been prattling on a long time in this Bob Heavy episode. I have this thing called the trust me card. Do you have this? Do you have a thing that you used to call the trust me card? Mm, No. On your projects? Unfamiliar. Nope. I don't think any commercial architects gets a trust me card. Yeah, I don't think so. So. We don't get much trust. (laughs) (laughs) That's not how I meant it. (laughs) Oh, go ahead. So here's what the trust me card is for me. Every residential project I've ever done, I've told the client that there will be a moment when I get to play the trust me card. And what that card is, is like, They want us to do something, and I feel so strongly about it. You should not do this, or you should do this, and they don't want to do it. I get to go, you need to trust me on this, and I get to play it, and they have to do it, Ah, which sounds ridiculous. One trust me card. Yeah, you just have to trust me on this. And you go, but that's only one. I get one of those in a project, right? Because there's tens of thousands where they can say, I want to do this. No, or yes. Yeah, they get to make the decision on time. They're like, well, they should get to make all the decisions. Their house. Why do I get a say in it? Well, I mean, they're hiring me because I'm supposed to have special insight into this process. And so I kind of have a rule. If you said, hey, Bob, I want to paint my children's nursery ox blood red. I'm going to say, you know what? That may not be a great idea. And they're like, nope, I want to do it. I'll say, well, have you thought about like color theory and how the light will be moved? I really love it. Okay. <laughs> if I start to give you information as to why you shouldn't do it, The third time you tell me, no, I want to do it, I'm not going to continue arguing with you. Mm -hmm. But in that particular instance, I might play the trust me card. (laughs) Yeah. Trust me, your child will thank you (laughs) by not having to go into therapy because you painted the room murder red. (laughs) I have this trust me card. In this sort of drip pattern. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Right? So I love the trust me card. Ironically, I don't have to use it very often. I rarely have to say, no, like, no, 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 really, you have to do this. Trust me card. Normally, by that point, you've built up enough trust. If I push back on like the second time, they'll go, all right, well, if you say so. (laughs) They should be allowed a certain number of if you say so's. (laughs) (laughs) Well, technically, they get as many as they want, right? I did have a client tell me recently, he goes, is there like an affidavit that we can sign where you'd make all the decisions for us? (laughs) Right, like we'll just do whatever you tell us to do, and I go no. Even if that existed, which it doesn't, yeah, I wouldn't do that. You have to have some skin in this, right? Yeah, this is not my house. This is your house. It's your house, right? So no, I don't even know that I get to do that when I design my own house. <laughs> yeah, your kids are going to have a say in that, or the budget, you know, all everything, right? Yeah. So I look at this and I go, designing a house, it's hard. And like I said, this topic, which may have been misleading, and if it was, I apologize. <laughs> Well, then if you guys want more, he can do more. (laughs) Yeah. If you want to say, hey, we want to talk about these specific aspects of the project. Great. But this is really post-vacation Bob. 
<laughs> with a 500,000 foot overview. Yes. All right. I feel better. I don't know if anyone else does, <laughs> but I feel better. That's good. I'm glad you do. <laughs> yeah. And I think I have a good would you rather question for today's episode. You've seen it. I wrote it. I spent maybe five seconds. Think, <laughs> I don't think I, I think I just typed it. Like just That's the thing. It's not overly cerebral, I don't think. No. Yeah. Well, are any of them really overly <laughs> cerebral? I don't know. Some of them. Do you think it's a good one, though, before we tell people what it is? I don't know. We'll see. Uh, we'll see. I don't know how much legs it's got. Well, we've been at this for almost an hour, so I don't think it needs a lot of legs. Okay. But I do feel like I have a responsibility to disagree with whatever, with whatever my answer is. path you take. Sure. I don't doubt yes, that. Yes, just so we have... So we have something to talk about. Okay, so here you go. <laughs> Would you rather eat breakfast for dinner or dinner for breakfast? Okay, is this all the time or just? Yeah, let's make this every. All the, like. All the time. All the time. Yeah. Okay. To me, it's a pretty easy choice. It's breakfast for dinner. You know, I think most people would choose that, I think. And the funny thing about it is because I had breakfast for dinner last night. <laughs> <laughs> is it because it's easy to cook? Yeah, it was kind of late and it seems like I have eggs and bread. And so, although last night I kind of overdid it, I made these pesto eggs, this thing I found on TikTok and so oh, it's this whole God. ordeal. <laughs> All my food recipes are from TikTok these days, but yeah. So I made some pesto eggs last night for dinner. And I would say always, even if it was just breakfast tacos, I mean, I could eat breakfast tacos for dinner all the time and be just fine. <laughs> okay. Well, I will tell you that- Disagree with me. You know, I do agree with you on that one. I don't want to agree with you, but it's the right answer. Breakfast for dinner is the way yeah. to go. And it's not that uncommon. I will tell you that. So my mom, she grew up basically on a ranch. Yeah. And her mother would get up like four o'clock in the morning and would literally cook the heaviest, highest caloric meal you could possibly imagine for, for breakfast. all the ranch hands to come in mm -hmm. because they would eat five million calories and then go out on horses and do what cowboys do and come back an hour after the sun is set and eat their second meal of the day. Mm -hmm. They're eating pork yeah. chops, you know, for breakfast and <laughs> yeah. gravy and steak and yeah, know. heavy, heavy food. And the truth is, is this kind of bums me out. Both my wife and my daughter do not like breakfast food. Oh. Right? Oh. I'm so unlucky. <laughs> That's pretty terrible, man. Yeah. I know. For them, like the most breakfasty they really want to go is like a bagel. A bagel. Yeah. I go, That's bread. That's <laughs> Yeah, I know. Not, right. That's... You can eat that whenever. All day, any time of day. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much. If I could eat I mean, this is bad for my heart and my everything else, so I don't I don't <laughs> do it very often. Yeah. But if I could eat eggs, bacon, toast, hash browns, orange juice. I'd eat that every day if I could. Oh, yeah, me too, for sure. I would never get tired of that. If I didn't have to cook it also. Yeah. Yeah. Not sausage patties, not links. I want bacon. I want my eggs. Your, how do you like your eggs? My favorite is probably over easy. That is the right answer. Technically, I kind of like the over medium. I don't like runny whites. Yeah, I don't I want, want the runny, whites completely white. cooked. Yeah. Right? Although I've started to think that poached might be okay because poached is like over yeah. easy. Yeah. Because really, you want cooked whites and runny yolks. Yep, exactly. Yeah. And hash browns with those type of eggs, awesome. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. 
I would love to go out once a week, go out and have breakfast, like a Saturday morning, let's go have breakfast or Sunday morning or once a month. Yeah. No. There, mm. why would anybody ever want to do that? <laughs> when I get to start coming back up for shows, we should just plan that Sunday morning. You and I will go get brunch and we'll just eat I know. eggs and hash browns till we can't stand up. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, when I was a kid, I think you know this, but you may not recall it. I thought I'd be a chef if the whole architecture thing didn't work out. Yeah. And so I used to cook a lot of the food for my family because my mom, she learned how to cook the food that her mother cooked, which is all that really labor intensive food. Yeah. I was probably in fourth grade and she's like, screw this. I'm done. <laughs> like just one day. Yeah. She said, I'm not cooking this stuff anymore. It takes two hours to cook a meal. And you know, it's all cast iron skill at this and making gravy for that. And she's like, I'm out. Yeah. And she turned into the worst cook ever. <laughs> She went from the best to the worst because all the stuff she knew how to make, she stopped making that kind of food. Mm -hmm. And so maybe that's why I thought I want to be a chef. I'd step up to save everybody. Mm. That does suit my personality. That does sound like you. Yep, for sure. (laughs) (laughs) And so my mom used to ask me to make her eggs at least once a week for dinner. Mm -hmm. But she liked the way I scrambled eggs. Mm -hmm. I couldn't fry an egg until I was about 25 years old. (laughs) Oh, funny. I mean, not like I knew how it was done, but like the way that I like them. Just couldn't master it. Yeah, I just, I didn't do it enough. Yeah. I mean, let's be honest. As a college kid, I was not making myself breakfast in the mornings. Mm. I'm not sure that I ever ate. Maybe a bowl of cereal. Yeah. Out of a giant bowl. Like a box as a serving when I was in college. Out of a chip bowl or a popcorn bowl or something. Yeah. (laughs) That's exactly right. So we know that. Breakfast for dinner is the right answer because breakfast food is great at any time of the day. And I was going to say, even if it's a bowl of cereal, like my kids will eat bowls of cereal for dinner sometimes where yeah. they're like, delicious. Man, I don't really know what I want. I'm just going to have a bowl of cereal. All right. You know, that's fine. It's still. Yeah. Awesome. That's acceptable. Yeah. I just have a hard time. And maybe it's just because like you say, it's the dinners that I eat or I want to eat. <laughs> I don't feel like having fish and chips at 8 a.m. <laughs> right. I don't want to eat lasagna. I know. Right, yeah. Seven. I know. It's time for regular tacos. I like how the fact you said, I'm going to eat my breakfast at 8 a.m. I'm like, my breakfast is 6 o'clock. If I'm eating breakfast, you're like, I'm rolling out of bed at 7.55 and go eat pork chops. It's just right now. Yes. In my summertime. So, yeah. Okay. So, if somebody thinks that dinner for breakfast is the right answer, part of me goes, you just need to keep that to yourself. (laughs) (laughs) But you know what? I'm actually pretty curious. I think that when I promote this, I'm going to ask people the question. I'm going to let people vote. And I'm going to say 80% will choose breakfast for dinner. Oh, I'm going to go with like 90. I bet it's more. Conservatively. Yeah. Conservatively 80. All right. You know, the only thing I could think of that just popped in my head that's acceptable, cold pizza. (laughs) Yeah. I do cold pizza for breakfast. That'd be all right. Yeah. But see, that's just leftovers. (laughs) Right, like you're not making like if you said hot pizza, like I'm gonna order pizza for breakfast. Oh yeah, Ugh. no. I'm gonna have a hot steaming pepperoni pie <sighs> at seven. Yeah, that's terrible. you know what, pizza's pretty good all the time though. But I don't know that I want. Yeah, not a breakfast. Hot pizza. Okay, all right. So there you go. Another episode in the books. I hope you enjoyed today's discussion, which was more of a rant. Episode seventy nine: Designing a House. Yeah. 
Special thanks to our media partners, Building Design and Construction, for their ongoing support of the Life of an Architect podcast. If you liked today's episode, please take the next 15 seconds and head on over to your favorite podcast listening app and hit that subscribe or follow button so you can get hot and toasty new episodes automatically downloaded every two weeks. While you're there, please consider leaving us a comment and I'd greatly appreciate it if you would leave us a five star, I do this for a living rating. <laughs> Be sure to visit the original lifeofanarchitect.com for show notes, links, info, and photos from this glorious episode. Thanks so much for tuning in. Take it easy, everybody. Cheers. Cheers.